A few takeaways that I'd like to provide, focusing on the social aspect and the relational nature of activist media practices. Social movements and activism today receive as much coverage in the news cycle as ever. But with the short attention span of the modern media ecosystem, how do activists and organizers create and promote the meaningful stories behind their work? Dr. Gino Canella is a researcher, educator, and filmmaker who studies how collaborative media production has the potential to foster meaningful relationships among people fighting for justice. He joins us today to discuss the role of storytelling and collaboration in the success of social movements and share his experience working alongside community organizers. This is Campus on the Common, the podcast of bright ideas from Emerson College's School of Communication. Broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, I'm your host, Emerson College alumnus and professor of communication studies, Mark Brody. Dr. Gina Canella, welcome to Campus on the Common. I understand that you're an expert in terms of activist media. What is activist media? Sure. Thanks so much for having me on, Mark. Really appreciate being here. Activist media, I look at in a couple different ways. It's a way for activists to interrupt social, political, and journalistic discourses. It's a way for organizers to complement and enhance their campaigns and their activist practices, their traditional organizing. And it's a way for them to network and build bridges with other organizers that may be able to expand out their coalition. Could you give us an example of how this manifests itself? I think a recent example that speaks to how activists are using media in their campaigns is the Starbucks Workers United effort. And this was something I studied for most of last year in 2022 as the movement was getting started. And a few things that organizers there have been doing that I think speak to how activist media is incorporated more and more into social movements and into community organizing practices is they're creating stories, creating original multimedia content that can humanize the workers, that can share the issues that they most care about, and can connect various stores, various um, districts that are trying to sort of broaden out the unionization effort. So reaching across geographic space is one thing that I think media practices can do really well. Connecting a store in Boston, let's say, with a store in New Orleans where unionization uh, rates are you know, not the same as they are in somewhere like Massachusetts or in New York or in California. They don't have the same history as, as these places. Um, so that's a way to sort of build those bridges and try to network um, with people who share similar interests and have uh, similar goals, but may not be in the same geographic location. And then also putting that issue on the agenda so that journalists, public officials, others would be aware of what's happening and try to keep that um, visibility high for the movement. So what I'm hearing is first there's the content creation and then there's the distribution and that distribution would go to journalists, politicians, etc. How would that distribution also go to other like-minded organizations? How do how is the connectivity element of that function? I think it can happen in a lot of different ways. One of the things that I think activists do really well when it comes to trying to distribute their work is thinking about who's our audience, who are interested parties here that we can use tags, we can try to manipulate the algorithm in some way to try to get that material in front of the right people so that it is reaching their intended audience. Then also trying to get outside of the echo chambers that inevitably get created online and 
getting outside of your your core base of supporters. And one of the ways you can do that is through public demonstrations and public screenings. So hosting exhibitions, hosting film screenings of that content so that it's not just solely relying on the social media platforms to try to broaden out that support, but to try to engage people in these direct face-to-face conversations. And I find in my experience, you know, making films, making media, screening them with a group in a physical space, and then having that discussion, that Q&A afterwards. We all have that experience when we watch a movie with our friends, we watch a TV show, there's always something that you want to say after the fact. There's some reaction, there's some emotional resonance that you felt from seeing that story. So I think media in that way is a really powerful medium to get those conversations going, to jumpstart conversations about the issues and the themes raised in the media. Wow, this is a lot more sophisticated than I thought. Initially, I was under the impression that, okay, this is somebody with a smartphone out at a protest trying to capture the gotcha moment where the cops come in with the billy clubs. What I'm hearing, it's quite the contrary. It's actually a very sophisticated campaign, if you will, that coordinates. There's the messaging. There's the actual content that you're creating from the field. There's the organizational elements. There's the distribution element. This really sounds sort of like the juncture of journalism and integrated marketing communication. Yeah, I think I always encourage my students and when I'm talking and having conversations with organizers and activists, it's about being strategic and deliberate with what you're creating and where you're creating it and how you're distributing it. So if you're, you know, just wanting to put a video on your website to go with your story, what's the motivation behind that? Why is that relevant for this particular story? What does that help illuminate that the text or the audio can't convey? So I think it's just not using media haphazardly because we all have phones, we can all create video, we can all create podcasts, but doing it in a way that's a little bit more connected to the campaign, to the organizing efforts, to the -the on-the-ground work that's needed to sustain the movement long-term. How would activist media today be different than activist media, say, from the 60s, the 40s? Historically, how has it evolved to where it is today, and what makes it unique? I think that's a great question, and that's something I try to address in my work, is the historical context and looking at different forms of media and having a broader conception of media. So media doesn't necessarily have to be a video or a podcast. It could be a banner. It could be a flyer that you're passing out, that you're going door to door. So those analog forms of media can also be included in this conversation. And historically, you can look at different labor unions, different activists that have made films um, and screen them in public forums, public exhibitions to try to do some of these things that I was mentioning earlier to engage people in meaningful conversations around the topics and the themes raised in the movie. But one thing that has happened is the speed has really sped up with uh, new technologies, you know, being digital, you can live stream. And so you don't have to necessarily wait to process the film, to develop the film negative, to get that photo, to get that image, and then edit it together and think more about the distribution and the exhibition. You have some of those things are happening simultaneously. So I think... There is a long tradition of activist media and a history here, but I think one of the things that has 
changed is that speed and again the geographic reach that social media and online platforms allow reaching international global audiences simultaneously live streaming that was something that wasn't possible with a film it's amazing how technology has abolished distance if you will that we can instantaneously go global which it sounds exactly like what you're talking about doing i'm curious are there certain types of organizations that are more likely to have this approach in terms of activist media yeah another note that i i talk about in the book is not simply looking at progressive or leftist social movements as the primary beneficiaries, if you will, of these kinds of methods. So we can see right-wing media using these kinds of tactics, governments and politicians using these kinds of tools to shift the narrative to try to present the story in a particular light that's going to sort of promote the issue in a way that aligns more with their beliefs. So I think there is a range of public actors that you can say use these kinds of methods and tools. I wonder, could you speak to the relationship between the mainstream media and activist media? Sure. This is a tension that I think is really prevalent. And I have a lot of really interesting conversations with my students about how journalism is changing and how journalism is oftentimes now fighting for relevance in digital media cultures where so many different players can be creating stories, can be presenting themselves as an authentic and authoritative news source. So what does that mean for journalists? How do they maintain their authority when anybody can create a story, be the news. And I think one of the things that I've seen in recent years is journalism tends to be very reactive in the sense that they are under a lot of extreme market pressures to maintain audience, to maintain ratings. And so they are operating more in that type of a feedback loop when activists and other public actors are putting pressure on how journalists do their work. And sometimes I think those reactions can be overcorrections. It seemed to me that you were implying that mainstream media has its areas where it's going to stay within its channel. Mm -hmm. When we look at community media, when we look at activist media, and then we compare that to traditional journalism, I'm wondering, does the the former activist media, community media, is that feeling a gap that's underserved from traditional journalism? I think there are two things where activist media and community media put pressure on traditional journalism. The first is, and I I call it product and process. So product would be the stories and what stories are told and how those stories are framed. So putting something on the agenda, highlighting an issue that is underreported or misreported is something that activists and community media practitioners regularly do when journalists are focused on certain topics rather than others. I think activist media can be a way to to bring to light certain issues that are not being covered. And the other with process is more about journalists' relationships with various communities. And so I think journalists, oftentimes, because they're short-staffed, because they don't have the resources, don't spend as much time as they should, in my view, engaging with communities in a more collaborative way, where they can 
you know, spend time with various neighborhood groups, various neighborhood associations, sitting down, learning what the issues are, learning what people's concerns are, and then thinking about how we can start to create a news story from those conversations, as opposed to just running in with an assignment with a script from your editor and not taking the community perspective into account. So I think in those ways, I think activists, media and community media practitioners reframe the issues that are important or that should be on the public agenda and also revise or update the practices that journalists do and push on traditional journalistic norms like distance, objectivity, neutrality, thinking about how we can collaborate, work together and have a little bit more of a back and forth open process to creating those stories. I'm wondering, what are the parallels between activist media and public relations, especially in terms of educating, persuading, informing? Sure. I think there's a lot of overlap there. I'm not an expert in public relations, so I don't know if I can speak as much to that field. But in terms of what are the motivations for creating activist media and incorporating these practices into a campaign. I think political education is a huge one that I hear from activists and labor organizers constantly, is that we need to educate our members. We need to give them the information that they need to be able to meaningfully participate in these conversations. So I think political education is a huge one. Persuasion is one that I haven't heard as often from various organizers and activists just because persuasion is such a difficult thing to achieve. And I think many times social movements and organizers don't necessarily have that as as a goal in mind, that we need to reach this particular audience. We need to move where we are on this issue and get to this place. It is not necessarily the focus. Sometimes that happens as added benefit, but I would say political education is probably the the primary motivation that I hear from activists most often with why they think these practices are important and are incorporated into their efforts. When we talk about the practice, how do we know when we're seeing activist media versus any other form of media? It's hard to identify just by looking at it. So I think you would need to talk to the practitioners and try to understand what the motivations are. So if there is some campaign, some effort where these practices are meant to complement, enhance, move that in a particular direction, that could be an example of activist media. If it's a protest or a demonstration and the participant is trying to enhance the visibility of that effort and bring it to new audiences to let people know that there's something happening downtown, that there's an effort at the state house, if they're reaching out for donations, for support, then I think you can start to see that that is part of the motivation. But I think just seeing maybe a bystander holding a phone, live streaming, and it's not exactly clear if that is part of an organizing effort or is you know, motivated by some desire to change the narrative in 
mainstream journalism or update our thinking on this particular issue, then it may just be somebody documenting and live streaming an event, you know, for whatever reason. Sort of a witness to history approach. Yeah, possibly. We're both photojournalists. As we were trained and we came up through the industry, we had certain rules we had to abide by. You can't go stage a shot, example. When we look at activist media, are there any rules the road? That's a great question. I think that ethical decisions when it comes to producing a film for a social movement or in collaboration with a labor union to promote their campaign is very different from how journalists would create a story and think about what they are and are not able to do. One example that I'll share that that maybe speaks to this is I was producing a film with a labor union in Colorado and I was sharing drafts of the story with various members of the union and offering them an opportunity to provide feedback to comment, to let me know how things were coming along. And this is something that's very much outside of traditional journalistic practice. And the president of the labor union asked if I could re-edit a section of the film to remove an interview that was included and in its place they would, they would identify another member with a similar story that could be done. And there were various reasons happening in the background for why that was needed. And I struggled with that decision and ultimately decided to give the union more editorial control than a traditional journalist would do. And I did that because I was preaching the values of democracy as I was producing this media and talking about collaboration as a central feature of activist media. So I thought it was right in that instance to have a little bit more shared editorial control. And I think it didn't change the story. I think for an average viewer watching that piece, watching that segment of the film, you wouldn't know that anything was changed. So in that case, I thought that sort of back and forth is an example of the the collaboration that, that, that oftentimes happens. So was that an example of that edit didn't really change the trajectory of the story? It just changed some of the, the context. Right. Can you give us some examples of how film and media have been used to support community organizational efforts? I, I know you had a lot to do with the tenant worker strike out in Worcester. I wonder, could you tell us about that experience and essentially from a film and media approach, how did that influence the situation? Sure. So the nurses at St. Vincent Hospital were on strike for about 10 months in 2021 and that hospital is owned by Tenant Healthcare. It's one of the largest for-profit healthcare companies in the country, owns many hospitals and clinics around the country. It's based in Texas. And so in that effort, workers were using social media to a degree, but an interesting finding there was that one of the nurses told me that they had so many supporters creating media for them, creating TikToks, Instagram posts, Facebook videos to support their efforts on their behalf. So sometimes I think to get back to your earlier question about how this kind of blurs the lines between propaganda and journalism and public relations, I think having someone else create stories about your effort and promote 
the strike on your behalf. It broadens out the pool of supporters. It's not as self-serving. I think is maybe creating a film about yourself or creating a video or a post about the strike effort. So having other organizers, other community activists that are active online that already maybe have a large following, sharing your story, amplifying your story, that's a really great example of of how media was used to sort of promote this campaign, but used adjacent to the nurses, if that makes sense. Sure. So what I'm, to me, how I'm interpreting that is instead of pushing a, a mediated reality by bringing in a third party, letting them create their content, and if it happens to align with your the activist's motivation, it's like, well, hey, here we go. Here's a third party, and they're coming to the same conclusion. It's not just us. It's someone else as well. Maybe you should come along with our way of thinking. Exactly. And to get back to your earlier question about persuasion, one of the things a nurse told me about was how how some of the conversations in the comment sections on Facebook were very difficult to reach detractors, people that weren't on board with the effort, that called the nurses greedy, that called them irresponsible for neglecting the patients of central Massachusetts, trying to engage with them in a meaningful discussion on Facebook, this nurse told me just wasn't happening. So she invited some commenters to visit the picket line. And one person actually took her up on that offer and then was able to come down and walk around, meet a variety of nurses, community members, support staff, and see that this was something that was being portrayed maybe in a way that wasn't as accurate online. And so trying to sort of break through those silos and break through kind of entrenched ideological positions on social media, I think that is another example of how that is difficult to do. I'm from Massachusetts and I've been loosely following the story and you know it seemed like for years and years and years back and forth back and forth typical union management situation but it started to snowball. We saw major political players getting involved that you know the, the governor, senators, um, all sorts of other important people that would have influence outside of just that the union. I'm wondering if it hadn't been for activist media if it would have gotten to that point because traditional media they were following it to a point in that okay it's a another union problem great but it only affects Worcester okay that's a small part of our overall market yet there was buzz and it kept people's attention it brought things to light that just seemed unjust so the guy on the street would be like, well, wait a minute, that's that's not right. We need to do something about it. And I'm wondering, when we look at the, the chasm between traditional journalism and activist media, if activist media hadn't been there, what do you think the outcome would have been? So I'm not sure if the outcome would have been much different or if it would have taken longer to reach the same conclusion. But I think one of the things that was happening in that case was nurses were held up as heroes throughout the pandemic. And this was coming out somewhat of that period where nurses were frontline essential workers, have very high favorability ratings. So they were using that regularly in traditional journalism coverage to talk with reporters, to communicate what their issues were in their own media, and then also connecting it to other issues, other related 
problems in the healthcare sector to say that this isn't an isolated case. This isn't an isolated issue that's only affecting residents and people that use the healthcare system in central Massachusetts. You can look at another example in Minnesota, another example in California. So organizers and activists and community members there were using media to try to connect the dots across various geographic locations, across different hospital ownership and management companies to say that this is a larger systemic issue and it affects you. At some point, if not now, you will need to take advantage of the healthcare system. Everybody is going to get old and need care. And so trying to sort of frame it in that way as a systemic issue that concerns you, that will concern you at some point, I think was one way that they tried to present the issue and put a little bit more urgency on it. I appreciate their messaging. Was the messaging coordinated when you look at these different geographic areas where they're going after it? Was there coordination? Was it just organic? How did that whole thing come about? Some of it's organic. Another thing that I heard from a number of nurses in this case was that there were a variety of approaches when it came to using media to thinking about messaging. And so some nurses preferred writing a more formal letter to the editor of the local newspaper in Worcester that had a little bit more of a professional sounding tone, if you want to say that. And other nurses who preferred to go on social media and really mix it up to get into back and forth debates and discussions that may get a little heated online and on the picket line. And so I think one of the things that I saw in that case was that there was coordination from the strike captains from the communications staff of the Massachusetts Nursing Association, but they also allowed it to be very worker-led. And I saw that as well in the Starbucks Workers United case, that there is some coordination, some overarching values and narratives that are shared, I think, among all of the organizers, but allowing for message diversity or for tactical flexibility, I think is something that nurses there really valued having that gave them a little bit more freedom to express how they were feeling about that 10-month strike in their own words. When we look at activist media, are there any metrics? How do we know when it's working? That's a difficult one to pin down. I think anytime you try to evaluate efficacy, you slide into a quantitative metric-based approach. So I always advocate against measuring impact or measuring engagement. And this is something that's really been taken up in newsrooms, in news organizations. Journalists have engagement editors and audience engagement specialists, and they tend to be focused on those kinds of measurements. So looking at shares across social media, looking at views, page views, there are even real-time platforms that allow you to see how certain stories or tweets or posts are performing relative to others. And I think 
trying to move away from that, it gets to be a little bit more ambiguous to see, are we having any effect? Is anything moving on this issue? And I think one of the ways you could do that would just be to look at public opinion polls. So looking at the fight for 15, going back 10 years, 11 years to the beginnings of that effort in 2012 and to where we are today. When people proposed a $15 minimum wage, everybody thought or many people thought that that was outrageous, that that was unreasonable. But now we've kind of seen a shift. And so to say it was due to the activist media or to the video or the news reports that were being created about those efforts, about those demonstrations and those strikes, I think is putting forward a correlation that I'm not sure I'm totally comfortable with. I think there's a lot more happening there. But I think that's one way that you can try to at least identify there has been some movement on this topic and whether or not our media was responsible for it is something that I think is is difficult to study. What advice would you offer to an activist or an organization that wants to use media as a way to advocate for their position? When I was getting started in community media about 10 years ago, I received a great piece of advice from an organizer in Philly, and she told me, get in where you fit in. And I thought that phrase has stuck with me throughout you know, this time doing this work, because in every campaign, in every situation that you go into, there's going to be different needs. The organizers are going to need different things. And so I try to get in where I'm able to contribute. If the organization needs support with their media, with their film, if they're trying to enhance their visibility or develop a little bit more of a presence online with their storytelling, that's something that I try to offer. If that's not really part of their strategy, then I try to think about and listen to where else I may be able to to contribute. So I think just going in with an open mind to not necessarily think in a media first or a video first approach to every situation. If you are a filmmaker, if you are a media practitioner, let's say you make a podcast, maybe that isn't the right venue. So I think just trying to sort of, again, like I mentioned earlier, with the journalists needing to slow down developing relationships, starting some of that work initially to try to understand what the needs are, what the goals are, and then working with the organizers to strategize on how to best achieve that. For an activist, how important is having digital storytelling skills? I would say storytelling skills are fairly essential for activists and organizers. I don't necessarily know that digital storytelling skills are always needed or are something that every organizer needs to to have that capacity. But storytelling, I think, you know, organizing is 
a communicative practice. You need to express how you're feeling, what you're thinking to your fellow organizers, to your colleagues, to the community members that you're trying to bring in to bolster your support. So I think storytelling is how we understand each other and how we understand the issues that are affecting me and you. And so trying to communicate that, I think, in stories, in narrative form, can I think make things more relatable, can make things more personable. So digital storytelling may not necessarily be something that everyone needs to practice, but I think storytelling, being able to communicate your stories, I think that is something that most organizers would say is a very beneficial skill. And I think storytelling, I should also say, includes active listening. So not always telling my story and thinking about the best way to deliver my experiences, but to think about how can I listen to your experiences and then consider how those are connected. Gina, with our remaining time, could you give our audience some takeaways? A few takeaways that I'd like to provide. The first is focusing on the social aspect and the relational nature of activist media practices. So trying to avoid a techno-utopian or a media-centric analysis is something that I always encourage. So focusing on the underlying relationships and the material conditions in which these practices occur, I think is always going to be important to think about how those stories are coming together, how people's experiences at work in the community are informing the way that they are approaching their campaigns and the way that they are making demands. And the second takeaway that I would offer is to practice patience. I think so much of my experiences creating activist media partnering with various social movements and labor unions has involved a lot of collaboration. And that process is really important for me to gather feedback from my partners, to listen to their concerns, to try to work in a way that's ethical and thoughtful. And that takes time. That is a very slow process. It's very different from how most journalism is done. It's probably very different from a lot of filmmaking. And so I think if you practice patience, both in the media production side of it, but also in the movement building and organizing side of it, I think you'll be better prepared to build things that are for the long term. Because social media are very ephemeral. They have trending topics come and go. One organizer told me there's the outrage of the day on Twitter. And so social media are very fast paced. They're very quick moving with what issues are on the public agenda. So in between those moments of high visibility, when the campaign is in the news, when workers are on strike and their videos are being shared and going viral on social media in between those moments during the lulls in the visibility. So having that institutional capacity and having the patience to see the effort through to the next moment of high visibility. So I think when so many people 
have gotten used to instant gratification. I think having patience and slowing down, I think will allow you to see the longer term goal. You've been listening to Campus on the Common. I'm your host, Mark Brody. In this episode, we spoke with Dr. Gino Canella, an assistant professor of journalism at Emerson College. Gino is a researcher, educator, and documentary filmmaker who films with grassroots organizers and studies how collaborative media production has the potential to foster meaningful relationships among people fighting for justice. His work has appeared internationally. His recent book, titled Activist Media, was published by Rutgers University Press. His latest film, Frontline 2021, covered the historic nursing strike at St. Vincent Hospital in Worcester, Massachusetts. Campus on the Common provides an expert view into the field of media and communication through the lens of academic experts and industry professionals from Emerson and beyond. Our producers include Lucas Poyser, Oliver Glass, and Chase Taylor. Campus on the Common is a production of Emerson College School of Communication. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.